Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled Collective Inebriation Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the slide 1953. In January of 1953, Ike Eisenhower was sworn in as the United States President, and then in March, Joseph Stalin died. Even though many Soviet people knew about his crimes, many believed that their sacrifices had been worth it and that communism remained the way of the future. Stalin was initially succeeded by triumvirate of leaders, but by mid-1955, Nikita Khrushchev was firmly in control. By the way, there's a hilarious movie about this episode called Death of Stalin with Steve Buscemi, and I highly recommend it. Khrushchev had been a poorly educated coal miner, peasant, and factory worker. He was described as a bombastic and clownish guy, and he bragged that the Soviets were turning out missiles like sausages, though most of them did not work that well. At a 1956 meeting, he told Western leaders, quote, Whether you like it or not, history is on our side, and we will bury you. Now, he wasn't threatening nuclear war, but rather predicting that communism would win out over capitalism. He also sincerely wanted to better the lives for the Russian people and believed that communism was the best way to ensure that. Well, in July 1953, the armistice was signed that ended the Korean War, and by August, the USSR had detonated a hydrogen bomb in the Central Asian desert. So now the U.S. monopoly on all WMDs is completely gone. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Late 1953. In September, West Germany joined NATO forces, and this was a nightmare scenario for the Soviets, who desperately wanted security and feared a revived Germany. In December, Ike Eisenhower went before the UN General Assembly and delivered his Adams for Peace speech. Ike said the United States was willing to meet with key countries to discuss the nuclear arms race, which, quote, overshadows not only the peace, but the very life of the world. Eisenhower also proposed the creation of a UN Atomic Energy Agency that would, quote, devise methods whereby this fissionable material would serve the peaceful pursuits of mankind, end quote. The Soviets actually responded favorably, and they wanted more than just atoms for peace. They wanted to discuss banning nuclear weapons altogether. Ike liked this idea, but was not yet ready to support it, since, quote, we cannot keep the United States as an armed camp or a garrison state. We must make plans to use the atom bomb if we become involved in a war. End quote. The point is that this was a missed opportunity to ban nuclear weapons, which still threatens to destroy the world as we know it. Please advance to the next slide entitled Cold War Policies. On March 1st, 1953, the United States conducted the Bravo test in the Pacific. A hydrogen bomb was exploded that was 750 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb, and radioactive fallout contaminated a Japanese fishing boat hundreds of miles downwind and set off radiation detectors around the world. Even the aggressive Churchill expressed concern, as did Ike. The administration then articulated another reason for pursuing containment policies. In April 1953, at a press conference, 
Ike articulated the most famous metaphor of the Cold War. Quote, You have a row of dominoes set up. You knock over the first one, and the last one will go over very quickly. So you could have a disintegration that would be of the most profound influences. End quote. Well, what is he talking about? Going forward, American leaders became obsessed with the domino theory of communist expansion, and they believed that if one country in a region fell to communism, all would soon follow. In most instances, this kind of thinking is way too simple, because in many parts of the third world, like India, Vietnam, and Egypt, for example, local people are revolting against colonial powers like Britain and France. Americans worry that these third world countries would go communist, and some of them did, but most of these revolutions were about nationalism, not communism, and this misunderstanding led to major problems during the Cold War that left millions dead. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Hotspots. In June 1954, America backed a covert operation to overthrow the president of Guatemala, he had been a nationalist who promoted land reform and seized land controlled by the American-owned United Fruit Company, and he also bought military supplies from Czechoslovakia, which was a Soviet satellite. This led to much internal conflict in the country, as rebels resented this interference, especially since Guatemala's new U.S.-backed leader was an authoritarian who was ultimately assassinated in 1957. And this is just one of many examples of U.S. interference in Latin American affairs. And also helps explain the instability of the region and the continued immigration of Latin Americans into the United States. In September of 1954, Mao Zedong and the Chinese communists started shelling Komoi and Matsu, which are two small islands between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan. If you recall, at the end of the Chinese Civil War the Nationalists had fled to Taiwan, and the Nationalists believed that Komoi and Matsu would serve as a staging ground for an eventual invasion of mainland China. Well, the United States responded to the shelling by signing a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan, which exists to this day. And then in March 1955, Dulles said that in order to contain the, quote, aggressive fanaticism of Chinese communists, the United States would be willing to use, quote, new and powerful weapons of precision which can utterly destroy military targets without endangering unrelated civilian centers, end quote. While he was blustering, the shelling did stop by April, which signaled that massive retaliation had worked, at least in theory. By November 1954, midterm elections in the United States occurred, and the Democrats won back control of both houses of Congress, which they had lost in 1952, because of Ike's popularity. As a result, the Democrats would control the Senate without interruption until 1981, and they would control the House of Representatives without interruption until 1995. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Domestic, 1954. From April to June of that year, the Army-McCarthy hearings took place in the U.S. Senate, as Senator McCarthy had accused the United States Army of harboring communists. And he even accused the former Army Chief of Staff and Secretary of State George Marshall of being a secret communist, which is absolutely ludicrous. These hearings were nationally televised, and as many as 20 million Americans tuned in to watch. 
For years, McCarthy had been leading a Senate investigative committee which accused people in government, film, industry, and education of being secret communists. And as I said in the previous lecture, this goes beyond the Senate, because when someone gets a subpoena to come before the committee, they are immediately marked. You could be blacklisted from your profession and lose your home, and declared a public enemy. Despite the fact that McCarthy's committee rarely had any proof, he still ruined many lives. But all of this will come to an end for McCarthy in 1954, when he accuses the United States Army's legal counsel of harboring communist sympathizers and subpoenas them to come before the Senate. At these hearings, McCarthy is rude. He doesn't listen to the answers given to him, and it is apparent that this is all just a show being put on for the press, much like much that is going on to this day. Well, in this situation, the chief counsel that represents the army had hired new lawyers fresh out of law school in the early 50s, and they were chosen to help with a case that dealt with classified material. The chief counsel on that case found out that one of the young men had been a member of the Lawyers Guild while in law school, and being part of a professional guild was not uncommon in the 30s and 40s. But in 1954, it could get you blacklisted. So when the chief counsel found out, he took this young man off the case, but allowed him to keep his job because he was a good lawyer. The chief counsel knew that if the wrong people were to find out about this young man being part of the lawyer's guild, it would ruin his career, and so he wanted to avoid that. Regardless, McCarthy found out about this man's affiliation in college, and that's why the Army's legal counsel is in front of the Senate in 1954. So in the clip that you're going to watch, you'll see an exchange between Mr. Welch, the chief counsel, and Senator McCarthy. So go ahead and watch it. Okay, so did you watch it? It's an amazing moment in American political history. As you saw, a dramatic point occurs when McCarthy attacks Joseph Welch's associate, to which Welch replied, Have you no decency, sir? It is this exchange that finally gets McCarthy censored by the Senate, and McCarthy loses his influence and ultimately dies of alcoholism a few years later. Despite McCarthy's downfall, his tactics will continue in American politics, and politicians will continue to call out their political enemies, accusing them of being communists or communist sympathizers with no proof. This is especially true in the South, where politicians began to accuse civil rights activists of being communists after the 1954 Brown vs. Board of Education decision. That May, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown that segregated schools were unconstitutional, and we will discuss this in more detail when we get to the Long Civil Rights Movement lecture next week. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Cold War, 55-56. In May of 1955, the Warsaw Pact was signed by the USSR and its Soviet satellites. And this is basically the Soviet version of NATO, so it's a mutually defensive alliance. Then in July a summit meeting occurred in Geneva, Switzerland, between the leaders of France, Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union. At this meeting, Ike proposed the Open Skies Program over the United States and the USSR, so that each side could fly reconnaissance missions over the other in order to ascertain the presence of nuclear weapons. Khrushchev rejected this, saying it would be like, quote, seeing into our bedrooms. We now know that Khrushchev was simply trying to hide the fact 
that the Soviets really didn't have many nuclear weapons at all. In February 1956, Khrushchev gave a speech at the 20th Congress of the Soviet Communist Party in which he revealed and denounced Stalin's crimes, which was a huge shocker to many in the country. Khrushchev later said, quote, I was obliged to tell the truth about the past, whatever the risks to me, end quote. And he also hinted that the USSR would relax its heavy hand, which inspired some Soviet satellites to rebel, and this would turn out badly for many. Mao Zedong was blindsided by Khrushchev's speech and moved to assume leadership in the international communist movement. Mao said, quote, The Soviet Union may attack Stalin, but we will not. In July of that year, the maiden flight of a new U.S. spy plane occurred, the U-2, and it could fly above the range of Soviet anti-aircraft missiles and fighter jets and was able to take pictures of Moscow and Leningrad. So American U-2 flights will continue for the next four years. The Soviet military did detect them on radar, but could not shoot them down. So they kept quiet about it for now. And the United States knew that these flights were a violation of international law, but kept authorizing them anyway. This will one day lead to a tragedy. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Suez Crisis. In July 1956, the Egyptian leader Gamal Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal, a major waterway linking the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean Sea. So a little backstory is necessary. Great Britain had essentially controlled Egypt and Sudan in the Anglo-Egyptian condominium since the 1880s, and Egypt's Suez Canal Company was primarily owned by British and French stockholders. Well, in the aftermath of the Second World War, many in the Egyptian military began agitating for the overthrow of their puppet ruler and a return to native rule. So Gamal Nasser, like many leaders in the Third World, was a nationalist who wanted to kick the imperialists out of his country. He did not want to take sides in the Cold War, but he also didn't like the British, whom he naturally associated with the United States. Further complicating matters was the fact that Nasser accepted funding from the Soviet Union in order to build the Aswan Dam, and he bought guns from Czechoslovakia, which was a Soviet satellite, as well as formally recognizing the communist government of China. Lastly, the British and the French did not want to lose control of the Suez Canal. So in October, the British and the French, with the help of the Israelis, attacked Egypt with the intention of ousting Nasser. However, they did not tell Ike about their plan, and he was furious. Quote, How could we possibly support Britain and France if in doing so we lose the whole Arab world? End quote. Ike then privately demanded that they withdraw their troops or face severe economic sanctions, and at the same time, Khrushchev publicly threatened them with rocket weapons if they did not withdraw. So as a result, the British, French, and Israeli forces withdrew, and Khrushchev mistakenly claimed that it was all because of his public threat. In the end, Nasser was the real winner, because he kept control of the canal and arguably played the superpowers off of one another. So this whole episode is called the Suez Crisis, and Nasser would be a national hero who ruled Egypt for 20 years, getting them into the Six-Day War in 1967 with Israel, and finally dying in 1970 to be succeeded by Anwar Sadat. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Cold War, 
56-57. In October of 1956, the people of Hungary, a Soviet satellite in Eastern Europe, revolted against communist rule and Soviet influence. This revolt occurred in part because Radio Free Europe broadcasts had encouraged Eastern Europeans to rebel and implied that the Western democracies would help them. In the end, though, the United States did not help the Hungarians, as Ike was focused on the Suez Crisis, and so the Red Army ultimately crushed the revolt, killing 30,000 Hungarians and 7,000 Soviet soldiers. Many believe that this was a missed opportunity for the United States to roll back communism. But regardless, in November, Ike was re-elected in a landslide victory. In August of 1957, the Soviets launched the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM. Then, on October 4th, the Soviet Union launched the world's first artificial satellite called Sputnik, which means traveling companion, and Americans panicked because they thought the Soviets could attach missiles to it. In November, a second Sputnik was launched, this time with a dog Laika on board, becoming the first animal to orbit the Earth, though she unfortunately died upon re-entry. As a result of these technological feats, Americans began to fear the creeping Soviet supremacy in the mythologized missile gap. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Federal Programs. In June 1956, the U.S. Congress passed the Federal Highway Act, which gave $27 billion to build 42,000 miles of interstate highways in the biggest public works project in U.S. history. 90% of this was funded by the federal government, and businessmen loved this, because highways allow for more interstate commerce, and federal investment in the infrastructure can grow the economy. And this is critical for modern America, since you do not have companies like Walmart, Tyson Chicken, J.B. Hunt, or Amazon to name a few, without highways to bring their products to consumers. Interstate highways were also considered important for the national defense, and as a young man, Eisenhower had seen how difficult it was to get military equipment transferred across the country on poor roads in rural states. In July 1958, the U.S. passed the National Aeronautics and Space Act, thereby creating NASA, which was largely a response to Sputnik. This will lead to the space race and America's greatest achievement, breaking the celestial bonds of Earth and landing on the moon. Then, that September, the U.S. passed the National Defense and Education Act, which authorized $887 million for college loans and grants to improve education, especially in math and science, which again is another reaction to Sputnik. However, we should note that it takes high taxes in order to sustain this type of spending. So in this era, the top tax rate was 90% on all earnings over a million dollars. So while this is burdensome to the 1%, this is how you build the highway system. This is how we built NASA and how you expanded higher education to fuel the defense industry. Please advance to the next slide entitled China 58. In January 1958, Mao Zedong announced his Great Leap Forward which was his plan to turn agrarian China into an industrial nation. Chinese farmers were ordered to abandon their crops, build furnaces, 
burn furniture as fuel, and melt agricultural tools to make steel. The historian Gaddis once said, quote, It was the greatest single human calamity of the 20th century. End quote. These acts led to a famine that killed over 30 million people from 1958 to 1961. And for comparison's sake, Stalin's collectivization program of the 1930s killed 5 to 7 million. Well, while the Great Leap Forward is going on, in March, the Soviets unilaterally halted their nuclear weapons testing. And evidence indicates that Soviet leaders wanted peace with the United States mainly because they wanted to spend their money on improving their people's lives rather than on a military buildup. However, in August, Mao Zedong starred Shelling Kamoi and Matsu again, probably distract his people from the economic failures in China. So again, the United States threatens nuclear retaliation, and when Khrushchev got wind of the shelling, he was very upset, because Mao had not consulted him, and because Mao had casually suggested that a war with the United States would not be such a bad thing. Nonetheless, Khrushchev threatened nuclear intervention, but only after he was certain that the crisis was about to be resolved, and then the whole thing blew over. But the situation showed that sometimes American and Soviet allies could drag them into a potentially disastrous situation, and that will culminate with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Khrushchev's Visit. In November 1958, Khrushchev issued an ultimatum saying that the U.S., Britain, and France had six months to evacuate their troops from West Berlin or he would transfer control of Western access rights to the East Germans. Why the ultimatum? Well, over the previous few years, over a million East Germans, most of them educated and trained people, had fled to West Berlin. And the communists wanted to stop this without building a wall because that would be like admitting that capitalism was better. So Khrushchev told his advisors that Berlin was the Achilles heel of the West, and it was, quote, the American foot in Europe that has a sore blister on it. Later, he said, quote, Berlin is the testicles of the West. Every time I want to make the West scream, I squeeze on Berlin, end quote. Ike said no to this, but invited Khrushchev to visit the United States, something that the leader had wanted to do for a while and so the situation was diffused. The next year, in September 1959, Khrushchev came to the United States, and he told his son that, quote, This is incredible. Today they have to take us into account. It is our strength that has led us to this. They have recognized our existence and our power. Who would have thought that the capitalists would invite me, a worker? End quote. While in the U.S. at a White House dinner, he toasted the richness of the United States, but predicted that, quote, tomorrow we shall be as rich as you, and the next day even richer, end quote. While on his tour, he got into a shouting match with the mayor of Los Angeles. He inspected a corn farm in Iowa, which he very much enjoyed, and he wanted to visit Disneyland, but was denied for security reasons. Lastly, he met Ike at Camp David, Maryland, where they agreed to meet the next year to have a serious talk about reducing arms. Unfortunately, another revolution would get in the way of this opportunity. So please advance to the next slide entitled, The Cuban Revolution. In January 1959, 
a middle-class lawyer, Fidel Castro, and his forces overthrew the U.S.-backed authoritarian government in Cuba. Castro was a nationalist who wanted to end U.S. interference in his country, which dated as far back as 1898. And Cuba was the mafia's playground, as well as a place that businesses exploited. While he was not a communist at first, by the end of 1959, he had made it clear that he liked communism. In the end of the next year, he seized $1 billion of American-owned property in Cuba and called Ike a gangster and a senile White House golfer. In 1960, he gave a four-and-a-half-hour speech at the UN and publicly embraced Khrushchev. Ike's administration responded by authorizing the CIA to start training an army of Cuban exiles to overthrow Castro, which continued into the JFK presidency, which we will describe later. This ultimately would lead to tragedy and a further alienation of U.S.-Cuban relations. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, U-2 Incident. In May 1960, an American U-2 spy plane was shot down over Soviet airspace. And this was actually probably the last U-2 flight that Ike would have ever authorized, because the U.S. was about to launch its first ever reconnaissance satellite, which would make the U-2 obsolete. After the spy plane was shot down, U.S. officials claimed that it was a weather plane, but the Soviets knew better, because they found cameras filled with pictures of top-secret Soviet military installations and captured the pilot, Francis Gary Powers, alive. Two weeks later, there was a summit meeting in Paris, and Khrushchev showed up determined to wreck the whole thing. He demanded that Ike apologize for the spying and punish those responsible. Ike obviously refused, and so Khrushchev walked out. This would chill American-Soviet relations when the next administration took office, which would be led by John Fitzgerald Kennedy after he defeated Richard Nixon in the 1960 U.S. presidential election. And this would lead to an infamous global confrontation that almost destroyed the entire world. Please advance to the last slide entitled, Ike's Legacy. In January 1961, Ike Eisenhower delivered his farewell address, which said, quote, This conjunction of immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwanted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex, end quote. This was a very prescient warning, because in the last six decades, there has been a massive growth of the American defense industry and American defense spending. And while a powerful military is a good deterrent for aggression, the way in which funding has been allocated has been problematic, since lobbyists have been awarded contracts from politicians due to corruption and incentives provided by arms dealers. Thus, tanks and aircraft carriers are built due to political demands rather than based on military requests, and weapon systems are routinely developed that go over budget and achieve less than desired results. Politicians will call for armed conflict in order to increase or justify high military spending, and equipment is often mothballed or abandoned and left to rot in order to purchase newer items. Officers rather waste materials 
rather than be thrifty with their resources in order to maintain high budgets. Despite such massive expenditures to weapons companies, the same investment is not made on our soldiers. Veterans in our era receive subpar health care and long waits at the VA. And soldiers are told to go to war with substandard protection, requiring their family to send them flak jackets. The point is that when you hear cuts to military spending or increases to military spending, you might actually want to look what the money is actually being spent on. And I would gladly cut a few billion dollars from failed jet designs and redundant purchases to be put into health care for our veterans. So as we can see, Ike was ultimately right about that and did many good things during his presidency. But Democrats criticized him for, quote, eight years of golfing and goofing, end quote. Despite the criticism, Ike was widely respected, and at least one scholar has referred to his hidden hand presidency, meaning that he often did things behind the scenes and out of the limelight. Another legacy of Eisenhower is that he was a Republican who embraced the core tenets of the New Deal, as he kept high spending and invested heavily in American infrastructure. Most importantly, Eisenhower kept the United States out of military confrontation with a nuclear-armed power, and one historian contended that, quote, Dwight Eisenhower and his foreign policy team were determined to contain communism, and they hoped to do it without plunging the globe into a nuclear war and without bankrupting the United States. The administration was successful on all three points, end quote. However, Ike's administration had one massive problem. They often confused nationalist movements in the third world with communist ones, and this would cause untold death and destruction and be especially problematic when Eisenhower supported intervention in Vietnam. But that is a story for another day. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.